It's time to talk about Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. And now, here's Ira. Las Vegas is still facing challenges as it begins to rebound from the effects of COVID-19. The restaurant industry in particular is still in flux, but my guest can help us make some sense of it all. He's Al Mancini. He's covered the local dining scene for numerous publications since 2003. He currently writes for the Las Vegas Review Journal, which he joined in 2016. Al's articles are available at reviewjournal.com, and you can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Al Mancini Vegas. Al, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. There's so much to talk about when it comes to dining and Las Vegas. In the last 20 years or 25 years, has really integrated in a sense. So we used to be known as the gaming capital of the world, and we still are. But then we added entertainment capital of the world, and then we added retail capital of the world. And of course, dining was one of the last ones to join us in a sense. And we could talk about that as well. But what brought you to Las Vegas, and how did you get started in this industry? Oh, man. Yeah, that's, I'll give you the short version, I promise. Um, you know, I, was for, I was a reformed lawyer working for ABC News Radio in New York, covering rock and roll primarily and entertainment in general. And we didn't have a full-time Las Vegas presence, and I convinced my bosses that we needed one. There was just so much going on. I was flying out here a lot. Our L.A. people were flying out here a lot. So I came out to cover Las Vegas for ABC News, and I did that for a long time, first full-time, then part-time. While I was out here, I really, um, I really wanted to write locally, and I got what you know I think a lot of men's dream or and women's dream job would be, which is reviewing strip clubs for uh, Las Vegas <laughs> Weekly. So I did that I, kind of as a husband-wife team. My wife and I worked together. I did the writing, but we reviewed them together, and that was really because I just wanted to be part of the community. I wanted to write pretty much anything that they would give me for a local paper, and the Weekly was kind enough to hire me to do that. From there, I stopped doing that job. Somebody asked me if I wanted to write about food for City Life. I really enjoyed it. And, you know, what basically happened is you get a little older and hanging out with spoiled 18-year-old millionaire rock stars is a little less fun (laughs) for a while. I started enjoying the company of chefs and and bartenders and waiters a lot more. And I always say it was funny because I'd be hanging out at House of Blues maybe and have two or three interviews scheduled. And in between, instead of hanging out at the bar, of House of Blues, I would walk over to Fleur de Lis at the time where Rick Moonen's RMC food. And that's where I would kill my time because I just, you know, was really just discovering the dining scene. And I became, you know, as passionate about food and beverages and chefs as I had been in my younger life about music and rock and roll. And at a certain point, rather than shake my fist at the things I didn't like in rock and roll, I figured I'd write about something that I loved. And we just sort of transitioned over into that over yeah, I remember the first being aware of you when you came to town and you were working for ABC at the time. And as you say, you morphed into this whole other world where I think you have more influence than you did when you were covering rock and roll. You know, when I came to Las Vegas, I always said, you know, coming from New York and being at ABC, it's a big fish, small pond kind of situation. Right. And I would always say, well, you know, it's one of the best stocked ponds in the world. And it was for... Um, <laughs> It was for for entertainment, but even more so for food. And I've got to tell you, you know, when I was writing for Las Vegas City Life, which was a great paper, but pretty small circulation, and I was getting access to these celebrity chefs, 
And I was thinking to myself, you know, the guy who writes about food and beverage for, um, for the Village Voice back in New York probably didn't have access to these same chefs who had restaurants in New York. And this is a small town, and you're able to get to know the people involved, and you're really able to, to get the gossip and, and get the news much more directly. And I've really loved that. And if I've been able to have any influence, I just hope that that influence is putting the right readers in the right restaurants where they're going to enjoy themselves. And, you know, I always say I'm just a guy holding a spotlight. The real talent is the chefs and people like that. But, you know, I do feel good about being able to shine a spotlight on people who might not otherwise have that shined on them. And if that helps their business here or there, I don't deceive myself into thinking I make a big impact. But if I, um, you know, if I can put one or two more customers into each restaurant, you know, that makes me feel pretty good about myself. Yeah, you put the light on the path to a particular chef or restaurant, and it does have an impact because what happens is someone reads you and goes to a restaurant A, and then they have a great experience. They tell their friends, and all of a sudden, it's a multiplier effect. Yeah, and I think you know we have a great foodie community here, and I've always tried to tap into that and have other people tell me what I should be writing about, and whether that be and there for years there were obviously before COVID going out to a lot of late night chef events and hang out where the chefs were, you know, in the middle of the evening. And there was a great social scene. And just by being able to do shots of whiskey with them at two or three in the morning, I really found out more about this town than you'd ever find out from reading press releases and things like that. So, you know, I just love Las Vegas. I love the sense of community that the food and beverage in particular has. We've all been there when, when members of our own have gotten ill and seen the community rally around it. Max Jacobson one of my fellow writers was sick. You know, you saw chefs do a benefit for him. Where else do chefs do a benefit for a critic? Usually they don't like him, you know? Right, and, exactly. Um, and the way that everyone rallied around Kerry Simon when he was ill, I don't know. I just, and going through one October and all kinds of things where I've seen this community come together. And it just makes me feel really, really privileged that I'm not a member of the food and beverage community. I'm a journalist. And yet they let me in their world. And, you know, man, that, that just feels pretty cool. And no other place could you do it but Las Vegas. What you said earlier, and I, I'll use an old slogan and apply it to this situation, where they used to say all roads lead to Sears. All roads really do lead to Las Vegas. Yeah, and that was, even when I was writing about rock stars and bands and pop acts, you know, I said it was interesting because when I'd be in New York, if they wanted to do, if they were doing interviews, they had 12 interviews set up in a day and they'd run by my studio and they'd chat with me. But when they rolled through Vegas, you know, I was the only national broadcast network here. So I kind of got all their time if I could pull them away from the strip clubs and the blackjack table. <laughs> so, you, know, you do get a lot of access here, man. And, and I love it. You know, it's a great place for, and again, it, you have to want to be part of the community. And, but for those of us who do, and who really want to get to know the people, yeah, I mean, I'm sure you found this. People are just very accessible here. Very accessible. It's gotten a little bit more corporate over the decades, but it's still the situation where you can get hold of somebody, usually in about three phone calls, if you don't know them, and you're not a member of the press. But it used to be you could get hold of them one call. But the, So it was a little yeah. bit of a change. And also for people listening to us outside of Las Vegas, you just gave some great insight into the feel of the community, not just the glitz and glamour of what Las Vegas is perceived as, which is important. Now, I want to talk a little bit with you about the changing scene here, because obviously there's the impact of COVID. And this has had a major, as I said in my intro, a a major impact on restaurants and the dining community. Do you see us digging our way out of this hole? Well, I, I think it like so many things, and sorry, my dog's going a little That's crazy. That's all right. We love dogs. We love dogs. Uh, That's okay. 
getting out of the way of where he is. Hopefully it will be a little quieter. But, you know, with so many things, I believe Las Vegas follows the world as far as getting out of, of these holes. You know, I mean, we, we're the crossroads of the world. So when, when people are ready to travel, I have no doubt they're going to want to come to Las Vegas. I think they're, Las Vegas is perfectly poised for people when they want to travel because this is where you come after you've been cooped up for a while. This is where you come for your bachelor party before you get tied down. And then this is where you come for your girls weekend or boys weekend when you want to cut loose. Right. So right. we have we've had now a year of people being tied down in some way or another. And when they want to cut loose, I have absolutely no doubt that Las Vegas is going to be at the top of a lot of people's lists. I mean, nobody wants a relaxing, secluded getaway when this thing is over. They want to come and they want action. So. As soon as people are ready for travel, I think Las Vegas will be here for them. I think where the dining scene will go is going to be directly dependent on two things. And number one, how many of these restaurants survive, especially with our off-strip scene, which was you know, really, really having a renaissance prior to COVID. So I just hope those guys have the funds to make it through. And I think that's going to be really important. And then as far as the other thing is really how much money people have when they come here. I don't necessarily think Las Vegas is a trend-setting town as far as what we do in our restaurants. I think we do the absolute best of what America as a whole is looking for. So if people are coming out of this thing and they're still budget travelers, then you're going to see a lot more budget restaurants. If people are coming out of this thing with a little bit of money in the bank, then I think they're going to splurge here more than they splurge anywhere else. So, you know, the the way that the economy weathers this is going to decide what kind of restaurants the resorts open up and in what order they reopen them. Al, would you agree that the infrastructure is still here? And it's, as you said, it's a matter of what kind of restaurant and what kind of food price or price point is going to be and what kind of quality of food, et cetera. These are all decisions that can be made once people start coming back. But the infrastructure itself is already and, and has been for a while. Yeah, the infrastructure is there, and Las Vegas has the ability to respond very quickly when they see that people are demanding something or that people just want something. You know, we, we have that in place. And those casinos, and I know they're taking a hit, and I know that, you know, I don't understand their finances. That's not my job. But I know that they do have big piles of cash somewhere, and if they know there's money to be made, they can make things happen. So on the casino end, I think we will gear up very quickly to exactly what people are looking for. I think what we're really going to have to be looking at is what happens to those places out in the suburbs, out in the neighborhoods, out in the communities. And that could go either way. I mean, in one instance, I think you had a lot of chefs during this past year who lost their jobs on the strip, and that kind of accelerated them doing new things and experimental new stuff and working out of their homes and starting ghost kitchens and food trucks and things like the Vegas Test Kitchen down on Fremont Street. So in some ways, we've seen a flight of talent from the Strip again that, that's accelerated. But how many of them are going to be lured away to other markets that might bounce back a little faster? That remains to be seen. You mentioned the downtown Test Kitchen. How is that set up? And give us a sense of it for people who are listening who don't know what that is. Because it's a unique idea. I guess Jolene was the one who was responsible for putting that together. Yeah, Jolene Menina, who is one of the most innovative people that I've come across in all my time writing about food here. And just as a quick background, she was the first culinary director for Life is Beautiful. 
She used to run those same late night food truck events that I was just talking to you about 10 years ago. She's done a lot of amazing things and she's taken over this spot directly next to Ferguson's downtown. And it used to be a restaurant. It used to be Chow by Natalie Young. And she's turned it into, I, I hate to use the term like food court because that's not the vibe. It's very downtown and hip and cool. But there are currently five and there will soon be seven different chefs with each with a different concept in there. It's geared so that they can run that for their takeout businesses or for perhaps their catering companies. They can use the kitchen for things like that. But at the same time, if you go down during the daytime hours, you know, there's an app where you can either dine in or you can take out. You order from your phone for all five or eventually all seven of those restaurants. And if you want to pick it up at the door and take it out, great. If you want to sit inside, there are limited tables. They have the entire alley between them and Ferguson's that's set up and it's really nice to hang out out there if it's not too cold. And, you know, it's you again, these are really, really innovative chefs who are trying out new things. You know, you have the team behind Forte Tapas that's doing Bulgarian street food. You have Sonia from over at Rooster Boy, and she's doing a bagel shop. You've got former sushi chef from Saki Rock, who is going to soon be opening up a sushi concept in there. All the way down to, and, and lots of other people, I, mean, I don't want to miss anybody, but you know, all the way down to Yukon Pizza, which is hanging out in that alleyway there. And that guy who's running that, Alex, he worked in the TV and film business as a cameraman. And he always just made pizzas in his backyard to kind of make friends. And when the film work dried up, he started making pizzas out of his house and then decided to go legit. And he's over there right now making these amazing sourdough pizzas. So it's just a very, very cool space where people can come in for maybe a month or two or three months at a time. They don't have to sign a long-term lease. They can only work a few hours a day, and they can really bring their product to a new audience, test it out, tweak it. And I think most of them are hoping that if it takes off, they'll eventually get their own brick and mortar. So it's kind of an incubator for those those young chefs. Yeah, it's a great idea. And of course, Bodega Bagel with Sonia, those, to me, are the best bagels in town. Oh, you get the everything bagel with the slightly toasted with a little bit of that white fish spread, put some Tobiko caviar on it. Oh, man, I'm getting hungry now. <laughs> well, before we eat, let's take a break. My guest, Al Mancini, has covered the local dining scene for numerous publications since 2003. He currently writes for the Las Vegas Review Journal, which he joined in 2016. Al's articles are available at ReviewJournal.com, and you can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Al Mancini Vegas. We'll be right back. We'll be back with more Talk About Las Vegas with Ira in just a moment. Come discover a world of possibilities, a world of wonder, a world carefully curated with interactive, hands-on experiences that put the unique needs of children to play, explore, belong, and learn right where they should be, and that's first. Discovery Children's Museum. Our kids first. For more information, please visit discoverykidslv.org. Now let's get back to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Welcome back. I'm talking with Al Mancini, who has covered the local dining scene for numerous publications since 2003. He currently writes for the Las Vegas Review-Journal, which he joined in 2016. Al's articles are available at ReviewJournal.com, and you can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Al Mancini Vegas. And Al, you were talking about downtown, and 
the whole idea of this innovative test kitchen, what I like about it is that it shows creative thinking. So you're not just going to say, well, I can't work because of the COVID-19, but instead of saying, well, there's nothing I can do, I've lost my job, here's a creative approach to making food, selling food, coming up with different kinds of food. Yeah, I think, you know, what has really impressed me about this town, and particularly the food and beverage industry during COVID, is the innovation. And I, I don't want to in any way diminish how hard it's been for these people. It's been incredibly hard. I don't think any industry other than entertainment has been hit as hard as food and beverage. But there's a lot of good reasons to throw up your hands and just cry or sob in a corner. But what I'm seeing from people is they're not doing that. They're saying, okay, what can we do? How can we make this work? What can we do that's new and interesting? And, you know, whether it be the Vegas Test Kitchen to try out new concepts at a low budget for the chefs, or whether it be something like James Trees at Esther's Kitchen, who has erected these cabanas in what used to be a parking lot behind the restaurant. So they're almost individual private dining rooms. And that way people feel a little safer about dining at his restaurant. It's not 100% outdoors because it's cold. You know, he's got a fire pit in the middle. It's beautiful. I mean, these are just people who are just, everybody loves to use the phrase, think outside the box. But right now our boxes have been shattered. And the people who are just thinking, what can I do to make people feel safe? comfortable eating my food and how can I fix up my food so that it works for this new world? That's another thing you're seeing is a lot of people adjusting their menus so that they're more takeout friendly, more delivery friendly, so that their containers will hold the food better for the drive home or so that, again, James Trees, has just I mentioned him a moment ago, but he's done the same thing with changing some of his recipes for his pastas because what tastes great right out of a kitchen might not taste great after it's sat in your car for 20 minutes on the way home. So these chefs are really just saying, how can, how can we make food that tastes great in a COVID world? And then how can we deliver it to people in a way that they're going to feel safe? And that's what we need more of. But uh, I've been impressed with how much of it that I've seen, honestly. Yeah, it's an interesting concept. Just the idea, the, the mindset that it takes to go forward despite the setbacks. That, that's the impressive part about this to me. Do you think that certain precautions will stay in effect once the pandemic is over with? Look, I think we're going to be probably a lot more health conscious. We're going to be a lot more germ conscious. We're going to be aware of people coughing probably for a very, very long time. So I think that there will be things that will definitely stay in effect. I think we'll have developed new habits that and just more awareness about things that's certainly going to stick with us for a while. You know, I always think my, my late grandmother, who was actually alive during the original Spanish flu, she had much, much more, much stronger views on washing her hands during her lifetime, right? I, I think sure. we're going to, that stuff's going to stick with us for years to come. It's going to be ingrained in us. And that, hey, look, that's great. You know, if we can make dining even healthier than it already is, and if we can make people feel even more safe, and that's what's important. It's really about messaging to the public that, Yes, Las Vegas is here and we want to be open for you guys, but we are taking precautions. We do value your safety and your health. And th those are the people who are impressing me right now, the people who not only want to send out the message of, yes, we're open, but who want to send out the message of, yes, we're open and we're thinking about you. And we know you might be nervous, but we're nervous too, and we're making sure you're safe. Yeah, that's a good point because I, I can see still using antiseptic wipes at a restaurant rather than just a napkin or 
washing hands. In other words, I, I can see certain things becoming the norm in a post-COVID world in the restaurant scene because of that caution that you talked about. And there's nothing wrong with being cautious because you want to enjoy someone's environment and you want to enjoy someone's cuisine, but you don't want to get sick. Yeah. I mean, look, at the end of the day, nobody wants to get sick from going out anywhere. And, you know, we, we, we're just thinking more about germs right now. So, you know, I could think going back 30 years to when I used to attend bar in a punk rock bar in New York City, like picture like pulling up the, the wet rag that I used to use to wash down the bar. Well, I don't think that's going to go like that you reach into a sink and pull up wet rag. And you know what? That may never have been legal, to be honest. I don't know. I was in a punk rock bar. But, um, <laughs> That's different there, yeah. Happen, <laughs> it used to happen all the time. All right. I think now people are going to want to see something come out of a Clorox box or something <laughs> like that, you know? <laughs> exactly. Now, probably the big question, I would think, the major question, any chance of the buffet coming back? My colleague, Heidi Ranella, she's written quite a few stories asking experts about the future in the, in the review journal, um, asking experts about the future of buffets. The consensus definitely seems to be that Las Vegas is never going to lose its buffet. I think that what we've seen is the buffet appeals to a very particular type of value conscious customer and also to a customer who really enjoys that visceral thrill of piling um, things up high <laughs> right. on top of each other. Yes. So when, when when Las Vegas tried to come back and say, okay, we're going to do a buffet, but we're going to do it differently. You're going to order it and bring it. It didn't go over all that well. And they had to eventually close it back down again. And we're going to see in the first or second week of January, we're going to see Wicked Spoon Buffet at Cosmopolitan closing back down again. That was one of the few that was still open. And I I believe the buffet is always going to be part of Las Vegas. I think that there are people who just love ordering 12 different styles of cuisine at the same time or going with a large group that can, you know, everybody order a different type of food because they can't agree where to go. And there are people who love taking that giant plate of shrimp and nothing's ever going to satisfy them, like piling up that, that plate really, really high. So for those people, I think the buffet is always going to be an appeal. I just think we need a world where you can do all of those things because a buffet without that, a buffet without taking your own and putting it on a plate and making this big giant monster plate of shrimp and crab, like it doesn't resonate with people. You know, they go for that experience. So I think that um, what we're seeing is that buffets are going to come, and we still do have a few buffets, but very, very few on Las Vegas Boulevard. I think after, um, after the Cosmo closes Wicked Spoon, all we're going to have is the one at the South Point. So I think. Buffets will come back in a big way when that style of dining is able to come back in a big way, when you can go with a large group of people, when you can grab your own food with the tongue. Yeah, I think that's the appeal of buffets because I think it gives a customer a sense of control. They're able to take control of the food and they can pile that shrimp on high and make a pig out of themselves, but it's their control of it as opposed to somebody making it for them and then serving it to them. Yeah. And I, I, look, I'll be the first to admit, I've said it in print many times. I'm not a buffet guy. I, I tend to waste too much food when I'm in a buffet. My eyes are bigger than my stomach kind of deal. And I don't like paying for all the other people who are wasting food. And I also like things to be beautifully plated. So it, the buffet's never had a big appeal to me, but I completely understand why it has a big appeal to so many other people. Okay. Let me throw this question at you because I'm curious. Putting aside the neighborhood scene, totally, putting aside the neighborhood restaurants, if you had to make an educated guess as to which bounced back first once COVID is mostly done, would it be downtown or would it be the Strip? I think downtown 
to be honest, today at the height of COVID is cooler than it was a year ago before COVID already. So I think like downtown has progressed nonstop over the last year, whether we're talking about the arts district, which has just blown up. I mean, absolutely blown up. Or whether we're talking about Circa, which is, you know, a never before seen attraction in downtown Las Vegas. So I don't think downtown needs to bounce back other than to get customers in there. I think it's already well ahead of where it was a year ago. So based on that alone, you know, I think that's the easy answer. But specifically the restaurant part of that equation, you think that downtown is already there and will bounce back even quicker than the Strip? Yeah, well, I was actually specifically talking about the restaurants. I mean, look at the Arts District. Look at what's open. Good Pie just opened on Main Street. Main Street Provisions just opened on Main Street. We have two new breweries on Main Street. We're putting a barbecue spot in right between those two new breweries on Main Street. And right now, Bruce Kalman, who's doing that barbecue, he's doing pop-ups in their outdoor tables serving barbecue. All of that is like brand new to the Arts District. And Circa has the first real curated restaurant collection. I mean, really quality curated restaurant collection that we've ever seen downtown. I mean, no disrespect to folks like the Golden Nugget. They've always had good food and so have a lot of the other downtown casinos, but nothing on par with this really well put together collection that we have at Circa. So uh, honestly, there's just really good food that's popped up this year downtown. What accounts for that downtown creativity? Would you say that Tony Shea and his influence started it all, or what was the genesis for all of this all coming together downtown versus the Strip? Look, we can never underestimate what Tony Shea did down there. There are some things he did that I like, some things he did that I definitely was not a big fan of. But at the end of the day, he certainly did what people had been trying to do for decades and really tried to make downtown cool. And I think that's because he tried to make it cool for his Zappos employees. And if you make it cool for the the 20-some kids working at a, at a company like Zappos, then you're going to make it cool for everybody. So that's important. But I also think that what we saw in the Arts District was very different than what we saw in um, Tony Shea's original investments. And I think that was a lot of scrappy young people who were going into places where the rents were still kind of low and they were still able to get a good deal and, and try to do something new and creative. So I think the arts district kind of had had a more generic, more excuse me, more natural, more grassroots coming up than what Tony did on Fremont East, and both of them are extremely important. And of course, there's some crossover between the two of them. But you know, I I just think look, a lot of young people, young chefs that were getting ready to to leave the strip and look for a new gig. I mean, you want to go to a downtown. Chefs who have worked in other major cities enjoy having that urban feel. You know, they like being able to walk from place to place. They like people discovering their restaurants because they walked past them and were able to pop their head in. That's something the Vegas suburbs have never really had. You have to know where you're going. You have to drive there. So I think just a lot of talent has been attracted to that traditional urban atmosphere that you have in downtown Las Vegas. That's a great insight, and that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Al Mancini. He's covered the local dining scene for numerous publications since 2003. He currently writes for the Las Vegas Review-Journal, which he joined in 2016. Al's articles are available at ReviewJournal.com, and you can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Al Mancini Vegas. Al, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. See you next time. 
You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. Yeah,